In today's episode of the Chain Clinkers Disc Golf Podcast, we are going to learn how one of the best disc golf YouTubers in the game has grown not only his skills over his first year of playing disc golf, but also how he's grown his YouTube channel to over 12,000 subscribers in less than a year. We've got a ton of good tips and tricks and advice on today's episode, as well as some amazing stories. Let's get into it, right? Now, Hi, my name is Anthony from Bodanza Disc Golf, and you're listening to the Chain Clankers Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to the Chain Clankers Disc Golf Podcast, presented by Upper Park Disc Golf, the best disc golf bags in the game at Upper Park. They have the new Pitch Pro, as well as the Shift 2023 coming out, and we are going to be doing an amazing review on this bag, highlighting the differences between the 2023 Shift and 2022 Shift, as well as exploring what exactly the Pinch Pro is and why it might be the best disc golf bag on the market. Make sure you use promo code CLINKERS10 at checkout to support our brand and save your wallet a little bit of cash. Sitting down with Anthony Bedanza here tonight from Bedanza Disc Golf, and, and this has been somebody who has almost been playing disc golf for a full year we're almost to the one year mark has grown his youtube channel to an extraordinary amount in less than 12 months and is looking to get on the pro tour anthony how are we doing tonight man super excited to have you on the show pretty good i mean it's better now that i'm able to talk to you guys i always like talking disc golf and content and the more people the merrier Heck yeah, man. We cannot wait to get this show rolling. We saw, or I mean, I've watched some of your content and got to say, it's money. So go check out Bodanza Disc Golf on YouTube, but I'm sure we're going to get to that enough, man. How, uh, how's everything going for you? You said you're, you're in the van right now. Let's, let's, uh, let's dig in. How's, how's that? Good. Uh, so honestly talking about being in the van and how good that is, is probably different than what we'd say. 16 months ago when we moved in because we're getting to the stage where uh, I got into the van before I got into disc golf and it was exciting and it was for travel and now our life has changed a little bit and our van has broken down a little literally yesterday two nights ago our alternator broke our van died and luckily where it died was next to mobile mechanics so that was good but we're in the stage where it's like we're kind of ready to be out of a van so it's if you're coming for me for van life inspiration right now, may, maybe we can talk after I'm out of this stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Let's let's talk about your beginning of your disc golf journey here. You know, you said that you were already kind of in van life before you got into disc golf. Can you kind of explore that further? Yeah, so my wife and I, I got married four years, September 1st in 2012, or 2018. And one of the things that my wife first told me when we met, like, we weren't even dating anything. She's like, hey, just so you know, like, I want to live in a van one day. And I was like, why in the world would you ever want to do that? And then we got married. I've been married for a little bit, and we're saving, like, for a house, working traditional jobs and such. And I'd always wanted to work for myself. And I got to the point where I was able to do that. And then our house fund turned into a, okay, now that we're kind of income independent and her job in the pandemic went remote. So it's like, maybe we could actually just turn this into a cheap van that we could go and live in for a while. So we ended up doing that. We bought a van uh, at the beginning of 2021 and started building it out slowly, but surely. And then got on the road September of that year. And then I didn't even, I never touched a golf disc. I don't think until maybe the end of December, early January, the following year, because we were moving and traveling. We had gone to maybe 15 states at this point already because we went straight up north from Florida, Orlando, where we were from. We did the northeast as it was fall, so we went down through Maine, all the way down the east coast, and made our way back to Florida and did that for the holidays. And then we were making our way up to Kansas City to visit one of our friends, and we stopped in Chattanooga. Uh, I... I have had so many of my subscribers tell me which course this was, but I cannot for the life of me ever remember which course it was. It's behind the Bass Pro Shops in Chattanooga. And I we just were there for the day to work remote and just hang out at a park. And I had an ultimate disc and I was cleaning the back of my van and I saw that there were like baskets. And so I just went and like played around with it. And my buddy who we were visiting in Kansas City was big into disc golf. It was one of his favorite hobbies. And so I told him about that. He's like, oh, I'm going to get you some discs. And so we visited him in Kansas City. Our van doesn't have a heater. We have like a little buddy propane heater. 
so like we can make it do. Um, but it was nine right. degrees when we were in Kansas City, and we were going to be there for a week, and we're like, okay, we're leaving after two days. And he gave me five discs, I think. It was a Champion Monster. It was a Nuke OS, I think, a Z Nuke OS. There was some mid-range from Innova that I cannot, for the life of me, remember what it was, an AVRX3, and a DX Leopard. And I, he gave them to me, like, early January, and we made our way basically straight south into through Oklahoma City and into Texas, and then again, just living in the van, we made our way to Zilker Park because in Austin, that's like one of the places that a lot of vans are just posted up, met up with some van friends, but that's also like a really nice park style, easy course. And we stayed there for like four days and I started playing there, met people who were playing. They taught me about U-Disc. I was just like chucking discs really poorly. Putter was obviously flying the best because I had a little bit of an ultimate background, not quite, but like I played church league ultimate. So like I had thrown discs before I played soccer, like I was relatively athletic, but then like I just couldn't, I like wanted to wake up in the morning and go play. And then I wanted to play until it was dark. And I was like, this is not going to be good. So that's kind of how it all started January this year, last year. Now, man, what a journey. That is fantastic, man. Kudos to you and your wife for doing the van life. I think it would be fun for about a month for me. And then I'd probably <laughs> want to, I don't know. I'd, I'd lose my mind. I would imagine, but that is, that is some awesome stuff. And I'm, I mean, I, I am jealous of the fact that you get to play courses all over the, wherever you're driving. I don't know about all over the country is completely accurate, but all up and down the East coast. If, well, maybe you weren't playing back then, but Kansas city South, mm -hmm. and now you've probably been up and down the East coast. I don't know a hundred percent for sure, but let's kind of dig into that. Where, where did you go from? Okay. So you picked up the ultimate disc, went and played that course in Texas, and then you wanted to play every single day, right? Just like all of us would like to do every day, all day. Yeah. Um, if my back wouldn't hurt, I definitely would do it. But where did you go from that point where it's like, holy moly, I am hooked. And then kind of what was next? Yeah. So it started slow. Cause, um, my, my job up until this point was twofold. It was, uh, selling on Amazon, uh, from retail stores, buying things that are in clearance, selling them on Amazon, as well as creating content on another YouTube channel that I've had since like 2019. Um, and that was monetized as well. So, um, so I still had to work, obviously. My job wasn't disc golf yet at this point. But we basically, I posted a video uh, on Christmas Day, actually, about my first, like, 11 months or whatever playing disc golf. Because from Texas, I think we traveled to another 22 states so far, and I played in all of them. And uh, so we went from there, bought my first, like, actual premium plastic disc in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It was a Star Thunder birthday. Right, so I got for ten bucks, but it was like super domey and stiff, so it's like super beefy. And then I really feel like I found like the scene of disc golf in Tucson, Arizona, and Phoenix, because I played with a lot of people in Tucson. And then in Phoenix, uh, I was able to get there the week after the memorial. And I like just I when I get into something, I get into it hard. So I was already listening to podcasts, I was watching videos, I wanted to get better, I was interested in the pro side of things. And so I was like, I gotta play this layout. I think I shot like plus fifteen or something, but I was like, okay, this is like this is cool, you know, like we can make this happen and uh ended up playing my first tournament about three months after playing in April, which was in Kanab, Utah. And then I've just been playing everywhere that I can, playing tournaments, filming ever since probably May or June. And I uh, started posting content in June of this year as well, uh, along with that. But that's been the broad strokes of the journey. But I think it's been 154 courses through Christmas is what I played in 22 different states. That was wild. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, that's literally the dream, right? Being able to play disc golf as much as we want. We're all disc golf fanatics and would love to do that. And I want to talk about that first tournament before we kind of get into the yeah. YouTube scene first, you know. What was your skill level like? What would you say your rating-ish or skill level was kind of going into that? And did that experience – I think the answer is yes. But did that experience fuel you to be a better disc golfer? Did everything in the event that you thought would happen happen? Or did you have some challenges in that event that made you kind of go back to the lab and want to improve your game even more? Yeah, it's a fun thing to think back on. Uh, I, I had been playing – I would played a bunch through – basically everywhere that we had traveled up to that point. And when I got to Kanab, we were there like two or three days before the tournament because where it is is also where you can sleep in Kanab. So we were able to just like sleep there in our van, make food. Like we, we have a whole life in the van. As long as we buy food, we have a fridge. Like we can live out of our van for a while. Mm -hmm. So we were able to just be at the place. And I was practicing a little bit. 
ended up meeting with uh, a couple MPO guys because I was just like taking too many shots on hole one. And then I was going back up to the tee to actually practice it. And they're like, hey, do you just want to play a practice round with us? And so there's some of my good friends, Justin and Matt, some of my best uh, friends that I met in MPO. And they kind of helped me to see this is where I should be playing. I thought it would be MA2 is where I wanted to play. And that's what I ended up playing um, because I like looked at the PDGA website. And they're like, you should be throwing this far, making this many putts. And I was like, I think I can maybe do that. I think I was maybe throwing consistently around 300 to 330 feet uh maybe and like probably using distance drivers where i should be using fairway drivers and i I felt like i was relatively accurate i tend to have a a knack for like picking things up quickly one of my patrons is a a kinesiologist and he says that proprioception is apparently the fancy way to say having good coordination and like getting everything kind of situated well and like just learning from your own body and so that's i felt like i was able to do that pretty well and went in, it was 20 to 30 mile an hour wins the whole tournament. So that was a learning experience in and of itself. And basically my whole goal going in was I want to get one 900 rated round. And so I think my first round I was like 904 rated. My second round was like 838 rated or something really poor, maybe 860. Um, and a lot of that was learning experiences because I was like four strokes back going into the tournament. And my MPO guys, because of playing with them, were like, dude, you could win this tournament. Like you have all the skills. Um, but I just wasn't consistent. And then like I got in the tournament, was super nervous about everything. Obviously first tournament, my putt's not consistent. I haven't practiced it very much. And then, uh, second round comes along and I end up on my, my third and fourth hole. I think I took a quadruple bogey on both of them in a row. And so I was plus eight for the round after being, Mm. no, it was like my eighth or ninth hole. And I was even through seven where everybody else was bogeying everything. And I was like, I'm playing so safe. I played so good. And I took two quad bogeys in a row. And in my head, I was like, I can't look at scores because I don't want to be freaked out by it. And on, and then like I totally checked out. And I ended up, I think, plus 15 for the round or something. Where if I would have stayed plus eight, I think I would have got second in the tournament. Like if I would have actually parred everything else out. Mm. And I was like, oh, I could have just, I could have actually checked scores and, and not checked out because when the conditions are bad, everyone's playing bad. And so that made me realize like, okay, I think my skill level can be there. Playing with those MPO guys, I was like, I'm doing a lot of the things that they can do they're doing them better and more consistent and a little farther, but I'm doing some of them and I can see the trajectory to get there. And so, uh, kind of when I put my mind to something and I set a goal, like I always want to go for it. And, uh, I always, I only wanted to play more tournaments cause I'm super competitive and I didn't have a very good athletic outlet in the van. And I always had had one. Otherwise, a lot of it was just soccer playing, um, in Orlando a lot, uh, as much as I can and a bunch of other things like that. And so now having one of those that I can play wherever and be either just athletic, like, or, uh, just competitive with, people that I meet and it's like I want to win this card because we're just playing casual or it's I want to go to a tournament and now I want to go to the pro tour and see if I can actually make a splash on there um it always just kind of drives me to the next and next stage that I feasibly can do and I think my dreams are a little too big for uh my reality sometimes but you never know if you can't try get ready for the greatest roast of all time the roast of Tom Brady a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, man, you, just like you said, you never know if you, if you don't try, and I think... I think there's a lot of people that would love to and have aspirations to become MPO, whether it's locally or if it is on the pro tour scene, right? Like, um, I know I would enjoy being MPO. I know it might take me a little longer than, uh, than our, our boy, Anthony Bodanza, but, uh, I, uh, I'm going to get there eventually, but let's talk, you talk, you, you kind of stroke on uh, consistency a little bit in the MPO guys that you played with then, um, and, I'm assuming that was something that really stuck with you. Kind of what did you do with that word to continue to better yourself and your game? A lot of it for me was just playing more. I think um, there's, I, I've, I put a lot of value in like just reps of like, okay, I'm going to get, if, if I'm bad at wooded golf, like if you have, if you have variety of courses around you, obviously, like if I'm bad at wooded golf, I'm just going to go get reps at a wooded course and I'm going to try to shoot very well. If, and so their consistency piece was actually what they had told me. I think it was either Matt or Justin and they were like, yeah, like you'll notice that you can do a lot of things that we can, but we do them so much more consistently. And that's why they were like 970 something rated players. And I was like, okay, like 
that's just good to know. And so getting that consistency piece wasn't something that up until probably these last couple months I actively really worked on. I just worked on I'm going to play more and try to get better and note and, and take note when I do something well and try to replicate that again. And like kind of a lot of times letting my really bad, a lot of it I think is self-confidence too, where it's if I'm not actively working on my field work or network and the things that I'm doing now, but then it was just, I'm just going to go and play as many rounds as I can. And I for like, I didn't realize this until now you asking that question of like, why did I get good fast or like better fast? And a lot of it was like, I don't really remember the bad shots. I don't remember the bad rounds. I just remember the good stuff. And that's kind of interesting for me because I am very, very hard on myself. A lot of my subscribers say I'm too hard on myself because I would keep a lot of that stuff in to be authentic. And I'm like, I kind of disagree with the notion that some people are like, no, you can't be hard on yourself. Like, look to the next thing. It's like, you could be hard on yourself, but then let it pass. It's like, oh, Anthony, you suck. Like, right. that was really bad. And But I'm not going to take that into the next throw. And when you do that, that's when it becomes dangerous. It's like, oh, you suck, so you can't do this thing next. It's, oh, you suck. You could say you suck. Like, yeah, maybe that's the wrong language. Maybe you say, oh, that was a really bad shot or that sucked. And maybe guiding it that way is fine. I don't really see a big difference in myself personally. I say you suck and I kind of laugh it off as a little bit of joke because I'm like, no, I'm not, I don't actually suck. And then I want to get better even against myself, like kind of pushing that way. And so I realized like, I just kind of remembered the good stuff and then my body remembered the good stuff and I tried to recreate the good stuff and forgot about the bad stuff. And so that's kind of, I think a lot of that is like the faster you're able to do things well, uh, or do something well and then try to recreate it, that'll be good. And a lot of that, if you don't have an athletic background, is probably going to take some coaching or just watching people or playing with the same people I think can help. And that's one of the problems. I don't play with the same people almost ever. I've maybe played max with like maybe six to ten rounds with one of the same people, and that's because I was with them for like two weeks, and then I'm, I'm gone on some more people. So I think having a solid group of friends that you could try to get better with and, and stuff would definitely be helpful, but... That was probably a lot of it. Thank you for making me realize that. I totally didn't realize that until just now. Heck yeah, man. Glad to help. Yeah, that, that kind of makes me think also, Trenton, like that was a really solid question. And I'm glad you kind of elaborated there at the end, Anthony, of, you know, my next question was going to be, how do you know when you are doing something correct how do you know when you're doing something good i feel like it's very easy to just be negative on yourself and be like that was bad that was bad that was bad but you, you kind of answered that a little bit by saying you know you need to be watching videos you need to have a group of people coaches maybe even that can advise when you are doing things correctly but let's say you know i'm a brand new disc golfer kind of like how yeah. you were and maybe i don't know anyone in the community or don't trust anyone in the community yeah. maybe i struggle i'm shy you know i struggle with with you know meeting new people is just watching videos and trying to do a side-by-side -side form check or something like that with like you know paul or eagle or simon or any of these big pro disc golfers is that maybe kind of the best route to go down or is there a better route that would be more useful of your time yeah i think i might be speaking a little out of turn uh if i was to answer that question 100 percent directly so i might take it in a slightly different direction real fast uh because i don't think i have direct experience with what you're asking and i don't know if i could speak on it like perfectly but i think it'll answer your question uh, where i understand it um i think uh one thing is if you don't know like the feeling things are good is good up to a point. And I'm learning that that was potentially bad for some parts now because having my background of athleticism and, and weightlifting a little bit as well, I had a lot of like, I was able to rotate very quickly. And so my form is, has been very bad. Uh, but I was able to throw consistently 400 to 420 feet and I hit 440. Like I parked a couple 440 foot shots in tournaments before. And like, that to say, I probably capped out at that because like I had that like background to do that. But now I'm having to relearn so much as I'm undergoing a really major form change right now. And like that's good up to a point. But where I'm going to take this is something that I've recently realized is, and I realized this first with my putt. Because my putt I think is the strongest part of my game right now by far. There's been a couple tournaments that I putt 100% inside the circle. I would say I'm probably close to 85 to 90% inside the circle putting. And probably close to 25 to 40% outside the circle putting. Um, or circle two. Uh, especially within about 50 feet. I feel like I, I feel like if I miss anything within 50 feet, I should have made the putt. And that's because I've done 
tons and tons of reps of reps of practice, but it's also because I know the mechanics of my putt and what makes it work. So I know I can diagnose if I missed a putt, I know exactly what went wrong to make me miss that putt. And knowing that, I can try to fix that the next time. If I notice I do it twice in a row, okay. If I'm not, a lot of it, a lot of times I'm, I'm going like this instead of opening my hand fully. And that's what a lot of times for me helps me to get that final little bit of snap and spin and keep the, the putt chain high longer. That was something that I did not have in my forehand or backhand up until about a month ago when I started doing some coaching. Um, and it's something that I could have done if I was a lot more intentional with actually filming myself and comparing myself. I think that's a really good route. I never really did it. And that's just a personality thing. I think that, like there's so many people who do do that. I mean, you look at Slingshot Disc Golf. He developed his own form by going essentially into the woods, watching Paul McBeth and comparing his form against it. And now he's coaching people in, in his method of throwing, which is awesome. And a lot of that comes down to like he was able to do that. For me, I felt the need to actually go out and hire somebody or have a local pro or a local buddy who is good at forehand or good at backhand and knows why to help to teach it. Because... For me, when I throw a backhand and it doesn't go well, in my head there are six to ten things that could be going wrong. And I need to be able to narrow that down. Like my putt, did I not pause at the bottom of my rep faster? Did I not bend my knees enough? Did, I, did my elbow not extend fully? Did my hand not extend fully? Did I release it up instead of forward? Those are things that I can diagnose in my putt that I'm still learning the backhand and forehand mechanics and what works exactly for me that I can't really diagnose that very well. And so that's where... Uh, you're going to have to play around with it if you want to just go the, the route of watching yourself and filming yourself. But I also realized in doing that, I have done that a little bit. And then yesterday, I kind of went on a binge of watching form videos and realized I'd watched most of these videos that I watched yesterday before, but I understood them so much more because I was actively working on my backhand form right now. I had look, watched them be like, oh, maybe this is a tip that can help me. But if you're not, like, especially in the off season right now, I'm at a stage where it's like, I'm going to go out to courses and film and stuff for videos and for fun and maybe to play with some subscribers, but I do not care how I shoot at all because right now my main goal is over the next six to eight weeks, I want to actually have pro backhand form because I don't right now. And so I'm just going to every day be at a net looking at my form and in that headspace, I'm watching these videos through a new lens of I'm trying to do everything that I can to get my form right because before they would have said things that just went straight over my head and now because I'm actively looking at every part of my throw, my, where my weight is shifting, how my legs are planted, whether I have a stagger or not, all my right arm, my elbow, my wrist, my grip, my off arm, my head placement, my traps, like all these things are things that I'm now thinking about so that when people talk about them, I understand it. And I think if you're, if you're, if you're passively consuming information, it's not really going to help you. But if you're actively doing work as well as consuming information, it is going to help you. And that's something that I wasn't doing before. I was just kind of like, this is cool. Maybe this will help fix my entire life and game. Maybe this will give me that extra 50 feet. It's like, I need to actively be working on my form in order to understand even what they're talking about a lot of times at an experiential level. I hope that answered your question. If it didn't, please ask it again. Cause <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, that was a great and a fantastic, uh, point of view. Cause that, that is definitely very true. It's hard to, even when I work on my form or think about working on my form, if, I mean, I'll be completely honest with you. I have not had time to play, throw, putt, film myself, throw into a net, all these things you're talking about over the last, oh, shoot. My, I have a six-month-old, so it's been about six months, let's be honest. Quentin can attest to that. It's been tough. But I'll watch forum videos, and like you said, it's it's kind of amazing. I never really put it, looked at it through this lens that you just kind of opened my eyes to, I guess. When I was like grinding right when i was really looking at what i wanted to do and really working on getting my backhand you know straight you know having a staggered step like you said pulling through not rounding yada 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 when i watched the form videos i had a little bit more of intent or focus and understood what was being said and then when now when i try to watch a form video it's kind of like just like you said it's uh you notice one thing and maybe that'll help so that is a good shout so get out there everybody I need to do the same. If you are going to work on your form, forehand, backhand, putting, uh, up shots, whatever, have intent and be focused on it. And I really love what you said also, Anthony, where you don't care what your score is. Like, that is the hardest thing, I think, for everyone that is competitive. Um, I played football, baseball, basketball growing up. I know Quentin played all kinds of sports. He's probably the most competitive person I've ever met or top five for sure. Where like one thing kind of goes a little bit awry and it's like, dang, what is happening right now? 
and you miss one putt and it's you have 18 holes left but you're in your own head you know that silly thing that all all amateurs and honestly all levels do and then eventually you get to the point where you can kind of grasp that and put that guy in your pocket and pull the good guy out and continue moving forward but um i think that's some that's some fantastic advice to make sure when you are actively working on form that you are fully invested on what's going on and try to ignore the the nuances and the bad things that don't really matter when all you're really trying to do is get that nose angle down and not round or whatever the option objective is of the of that round or of your you know couple weeks like you said I think that was a great shot I don't even really have anything to say I just wanted to elaborate on it and kind of think thank you for the advice I guess so (laughs) Well, I, I'll I'll ask a question yeah. on that then because I, I, I while you were talking I kind of came up with something there and it, it kind of deals with when you were talking about putting you were saying okay well I know I didn't open my hand enough or maybe my elbow placement was wrong or I went down at an angle and just straight down as you've been working on improving your backhand form a I've watched a couple of your videos on the nets I think a net after watching those videos I'm much more in the camp of if you actually like really want to work on your form i think having a net is really crucial because you don't see the entire flight of the disc you just see yourself working on that specific x y z whatever you're working on in the moment and you can get a lot more reps in uh easier but like you said you also need to take 10 minutes every now and then and chill uh so you don't overdo it and hurt yourself but where i'm going with this is when you're doing these reps working on your form how much time are you spending on each individual component of that backhand form? Are you taking the entirety of the form and trying to do it all in one? Or is it like, hey, these next 30 reps, I'm only going to focus on my hips. Okay, these next 30 reps, I'm going to focus on my head placement. Okay, these 30 reps, I'm going to focus on my off arm. Like, how do you kind of divvy up what you should be focusing on and maybe it's everything or maybe it's just more kind of simplified if you could elaborate on that yeah i think um it's all this is another place where like i don't i one of the things that i want to be very like transparent about and i do say this all the time is like i'm not a coach i don't want to be a coach i'm an athlete who wants to share my journey and like right now i'm at that like point where I'm still trying to figure that out for myself a little bit. And honestly, I think the way that I have worked it is I'm kind of blocking the movements. I'm looking at right now, just looking at the trajectory of my life. And the van is like, we want to move into an apartment probably the end of February, early to mid March. And my goal is to feel confident enough to go and make it to OTB open through Zootown open that swing. Cause we're, we want to move to Denver. I think um, that's basically our plan right now. And then to get out, we also want to go to the Pacific Northwest cause that's one of the only places we didn't go. So going to Stockton, California, hitting up the three or four events in uh, Portland area, Seattle area, and then going over to Missoula um, and starting my tour there and like seeing how I fare. If I get last at all those tournaments, that sucks, but there's going to be a lot that I learned to figure out, but I don't want to go out there if I don't feel confident in my backhand form. And so I'm really like, I've heard a lot of people say six to eight weeks is like, if you really focus on it is how long it'll take to fix your form. A lot of things in my life have come faster than that. And I'm hoping that this is one of them, but knowing I'm blocking out that time, the next two months where right now I'm just kind of blocking each step. The biggest miss for me was my hips. Uh, the way that I moved my hips was very counterintuitive to actually getting a good throw and a smooth throw. And so now I just re- re- did my distance and I lost some distance because I'm working on new things. I also kind of reverted to some old things as I was trying to throw that distance. And so right now I really worked on my hips um, and I'm kind of trying to block each part of the movement incrementally. And I'm kind of letting a coach lead me through that instead of doing it 100% myself. Uh, and that's where I think the value in having a coach, if you can, is helpful. Or if you're really good at just blocking it yourself, that could be helpful as well. But I'm really, like, there, like the things that I'm mainly thinking about right now are uh, the way that I distribute my weight on my feet, not falling over my lie, bracing with my right foot, my off arm actually creating space because my arm does not stay up when I throw. And, um, like, the, that's a lot of things to think about, as well as having good tilt, um, as well as the way that my new hip movement is working. And so I've been basically just repping for the past uh, week or two, uh, just my hip movement. And I've gotten most of that down. I still have a little bit of a ways to go, but that's becoming more natural that um, when I'm, when I'm throwing, that's kind of what feels more natural where it felt very weird at the very beginning. 
and that's kind of where it needs to be is like it's going to feel weird every step that you take but then it'll start to feel natural and so i basically blocked that and i don't know what the next step is a hundred percent i'm basically trying to look at pro form and make sure that my frames are matching up and things uh but i'm trying to let someone lead me along that process and i that is a place where i am able to do that i'm really like blessed and thankful that I'm able to like hire a coach to be able to do that with me. And I think that's the fastest way to do it probably because they've taken other people through this journey. But I don't even really necessarily know how to answer that question specifically because I, the but I'm really focused on blocking one thing until it's natural. Maybe you can do two things. Maybe you can do one lower body, one upper body or two lower body. Or maybe there's three things in your lower body that are messed up that are actually the root of one thing. And if you work on that, everything will get fixed. Um, but I'm honestly not 100% sure at what the best and maybe talk to me in three months when I have a good form and we can talk about that. But for now, it's got to in, in process. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. What do you think? So you're working on your hips and that's became, went from kind of a foreign feeling thing to feeling the most, or one of the most natural things in your movement. What are you doing every day? I know you're doing nets. Um, is that like, you wake up, you throw into a net for an hour, then you go to the course and actually play or kind of, how does your, daily practice look like yeah right now it's ba my main practice is uh network uh i've i've realized that i probably want to do a little bit of field work as well as network or even um just in the long side like if i can bring the net to a field and almost exclusively throw into a net but sometimes throw out in the field because i've noticed sometimes i'll throw a little bit down and i'd be like oh that's a good shot but actually if i would have thrown it into a field it would have turfed at 100 feet it's like okay that's not actually good so right. having a little bit of that mix mix there the main thing for me, though, is uh, I'm throwing into a net and recording every single rep. And then, just like you were saying earlier, Quentin, the the um, rest part of it, where if you are doing field work, you can go rest while you walk and grab your discs. The rest part of it that I found for network is taking the time to actually analyze every rep, all the form. Okay, what did I do good? What did I do bad? And did it feel like it was good or bad? Um, and then... And then doing it there. I, I'm trying to do network every day. I'm also at lifting right now and trying to get back into the gym um, with another coach that I'm working with to to work on strength and flexibility before uh, the season rolls around and create habits that I can bring into the season so I continue to work while I'm also on tour, ideally. Maybe not on tour, just playing tournaments depending on whatever happens this year. Um, but not, I... I don't really include any coursework right now, and I'm not planning on doing any coursework probably until about four to six weeks until my season starts, uh, my actual on-season, which for me is probably going to be middle to late March, um, early April. May might play a few events just for fun, but uh, that way I'm just really focusing on my form, or until I feel like my form is really good, and then I can go to a field and try to work it out. I just basically am going to courses to shoot content because that's my job. So, uh, so I'll work on it a little bit there, and that's kind of helpful, and I can look at my stuff and sometimes cringe when I edit sometimes be like good job you did something good buddy um just depends on how I actually <laughs> threw that day but uh most of it right now is just into a net and recording every throw and going over my recordings and saying okay how is this actually working um trying to talk to a coach and, and that's basically and comparing my form to pros that's basically all it is uh for me right now just a lot of net time spent at a net which is fun for me luckily if it wasn't fun that would suck but I really enjoyed the process <laughs> that's awesome that's good stuff man but you did hit it on there a little bit talking about how filming content is your job let's explore that a little bit more mm -hmm. you you're running a very successful youtube channel i can only imagine you're ecstatic over the moon with its growth so far uh not even been a full year yet what initially made you want to start a youtube channel yeah so i've been wanting to do youtube for seven to ten years probably i want to do it for a while and i've started and stopped a bunch of channels um the one that kind of caught on was i have another channel which is just my name it's still uh on youtube i haven't posted on it in a little over three months i'm planning on getting back into posting a little bit but that was where i started initially making money with content and monetizing it and i had been doing that for three or four or for probably two and a half years and built my own editing style i've I know that I can edit and shoot content. Uh, and I've been obsessed with uh, learning YouTube and learning how to tell stories um, and get people engaged. And so coming into disc golf, I saw that there was just kind of a gap in the market where a, there, there are, is much more of a demand for disc golf content than there is a supply of disc golf content. And that creates a couple things where like, 
like you could just come in and have disc golf content. And I think this was a little more true earlier last year where you can come in and like create disc golf content. And as long as you know how to target uh, audiences of like just just knowing how to put together a title and thumbnail, people will be interested in clicking on your video and obviously talking about topics that people are interested in in disc golf. Um, and there's also like I think that coming in with a background of editing uh, fast-paced uh, engaging videos and being a personality where my other channel is about finance and business but from like a vlog lifestyle lens because like I, I don't purport to be an expert in almost anything but I'll share my journey because I think that there's a lot of value that people can take from the journey and they can take um, that's what I'm basically doing on my disc golf channel I'm not really an expert in disc golf or anything I'm just sharing what works for me what is my journey if it works for you that's awesome if you disagree with my opinions that's fine like you don't have to agree I'm just saying my opinions but in a little bit more of a cheeky confident way because everyone in a disc golf has opinions so if you say something and try to put some confidence behind it everyone's going to come at you and then you get a bunch of comment engagement but um i think yeah ha seeing kind of the gap of like there's a lot of people who want more disc golf content i thought that uh, i could punch up a lot of titles and thumbnails and i thought that i could create engaging stuff and so i just started creating content that was in my style uh on my other channel but more for disc golf because i was really obsessed and passionate about it anyways and i was like I had this job over here. Let's see if I can turn this into into a job. And um, there was a marketplace for the content that I wanted to create. And I think that there still is more of a market for more um, true traditional influencers to come in and, and share their journeys in disc golf. I will give, here's, here's my big piece of advice for someone who wants to grow a channel quickly is to invite someone into a meta story. And that's what I think I did with um, telling everybody from the gap, from the jump that my goal was to cash at a pro tour event. So people either want to come along to hate on me while I fail at MA2 tournaments or they want to come along for the journey and see how it goes. But a lot of people are interested like, okay, I started what I started my channel in June of this year. Um, and so it's like, okay, I've only been playing disc golf for five, six months, uh, but I want to cash at Pro Tour event. Like, what is that journey going to look like? And then I think that that, so that invites the people along now. And then if something does happen and I do play on the Pro Tour and I do play well, then I have that whole entire process documented for people to go back and watch, like, this is what happened. So that's kind of the exciting piece. But I would say if you're interested in creating videos, you have to love creating videos because I love creating videos. And I would also say that every single video is a story, and you need to figure out what that story is, even if it's just a disc review. Like, the story is – and if you don't know how to tell a story, think about a question. Ask, Say that you want to answer a question by the end of the video. Okay, is this disc worth making into your bag? That's a story that you can answer throughout that video. And there's a bunch of other ways that that plays out, but that's how you keep audiences engaged. And ultimately on YouTube, the longer people watch your videos and the more people click on your videos, the more YouTube will service it to audiences. And I was basic, I'm basically 100% organic with my growth on the channel. Like did some collaborations that helped, but a lot of it's just I knew how to make titles and thumbnails and keep people engaged but with my editing style. And, and that uh, I was able to see that marketplace and I was just really passionate about this golf in and of itself. So I was uh, excited to, I'm excited that it has come to where it is and excited to see where it grows because I have a ton of stuff planned for this year and beyond. Yeah, well, uh, that was some fantastic advice, Quentin. I uh, hope you took all those notes because um, we definitely, uh, yeah, same here. We definitely, we definitely have a lot of things. We talk about our our YouTube stuff all the time, and we um, we got some exciting stuff in the works as well. And we are starting to work on the same type of deal, you know, creating stories, trying to, you know, be more engaging. All the good stuff. It's just uh, need. We got some tea that we want to spill but cannot spill yeah. yet for the YouTube stuff. Well, sorry. Oh, no, you're good. That's I was just going to say we just show. unfortunately right. We just don't uh, have the the editing or the uh, video background. So it's all organic and we're just having a good time doing it and hopefully everyone that tunes in, thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you're enjoying it. But Anthony, that's enough about us. We're talking about you right now. The channel has absolutely blown up in not even 6 months. You make awesome content. They're following you to get to the pro tour event. What is the, what is the, oh man, you, I mean, it's, it's what you do for a living, but I, I still want to ask what has been the most enjoyable part of this six month YouTube journey of your tour to making money at a pro tour event? Just what's been the most enjoyable part of like creating the, what's like so the, yeah, so what is like your your favorite thing about doing that and creating the content for all your subscribers and followers and Patreons and everything? Yeah, I think it's it's multiple fold. I'm going to give uh 
two answers. One of them is going to be selfish, but one of the answers is the kind of community that I think disc golf is like bringing in in general, but also that I I think I'm able to show a side of it of like being new. So it's been really cool the 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 community that is on my videos that I see the same people commenting all the time. I have the same people in my DMs that we just like have created some sort of a relationship where it's like they tell me, hey, I just played my first tournament. And like a lot of it's like inspiring people to be competitive because I'm very competitive. I'm like, I want more people to be competitive because that's fun. And like to have people be like, oh, I, I, I just played my first tournament after X years of playing disc golf. Or like, oh, I'm, I just signed up for my first tournament. That's really cool. And then having, yeah, just it's, it's funny because I just meant for this to be my own journey, but it's been uh, inspiring to some people in some way, which is not what I had expected. Um, but a cool unintended consequence and, and being able to see uh, everybody all the time in my comments and building that community has been really cool, including being able to meet up with people as I've been able to travel. I think the selfish one is like it's turned into a full-time income for me. So that's really nice that I've been able to take my passion of creating videos. And like I'm working a lot and most of the time it's not actually playing disc golf, but a lot of, but some of the time my work is playing disc golf and that's really cool. Um, that I'm able to do that and know like, oh, I'm going to go play disc golf and try out new discs that I've never tried before and people are going to want to watch that and then I'm going to get to make money from that. And so that's that's really cool. So that's been a cool part of the process as well, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. How do you determine what video you're going to make next? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't remember if it was in your live or maybe if it was another video that I was watching, but you were saying something along the lines that you have content planned for, you know, at least the next two weeks or maybe maybe I'm off on my dates, but you already have a ton of content planned and trying to fit in new stuff might be a little bit of a challenge. How do you plan your content out? Like what's what's kind of your thought process in that? Yeah, I have my content planned right now for the next about 30 to 40 days. Um, and I have new, I have more video ideas and things obviously beyond that. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of it is for me as someone like I'm, I'm busy, I have a lot going on. And so it's nice to have a schedule of like, this is going to happen if nothing changes that trajectory. But I, but that being said, the, if nothing changes that trajectory part means that I hold it with pretty loose hands. So um, like there are some cool collaborations that are going to be coming up within the next couple of weeks I'm going to be able to do. I don't know how many videos are going to come out of that. I haven't planned that yet. And I don't know where that's going to fit in the schedule, but I can just shift things by days. Cause I, I, I do content every day. Uh, this actually in January, I think I'm going to put out about 40 videos because some of my series I had initially planned for them to be front nine one day, back nine the other day. And then I realized I have too much content planned. So I have to do front nine, back nine, same day. So, um, that's, Kind of like if you think about a skins, like they do front nine and back nine the same day. And I, that's just to keep the video's mm -hmm. lengths down because uh, keeping people engaged for 30 minutes is a lot harder than keeping people engaged for 15 minutes. So, um, but that's where I have tons and tons of stuff scheduled and even more that like I could put on the schedule, but I try to be two weeks to a month out because I have been basically the same day that a content is going up. I'm either shooting it that day or editing it that day or both. Um, and I would like to be at a place where I have three to seven days ahead on content, which is just a lot of upfront work. But then it gets me to where I can sit back a little bit, um, but I can also shuffle things around a little as well. And I don't think I'm going to do daily forever, but for the foreseeable future, that's my plan because I think that if I can continue hitting it hard, I think about it as kind of like a, it's a, it's a very long-term play of I'm creating a very massive library of content that will always be on YouTube that people can always go watch. And I have the energy and ability to do it all right now. And so I'm going to continue putting out daily videos as long as I possibly can, as long as I can keep the, the quality of the content high enough. Um, and then hopefully get to a point where it's sustainable without me having to do it every single day at a income level that's high enough. But essentially I have everything planned so that I, a lot of that is so that I know what to do that day. Cause I have so many video ideas and like, right. frankly, I think I have 25 different either singular discs or companies lineups in the back of my van right now that I am going to go film with at some point. And so knowing which one of those to do any given day at any given course is like, I have no idea how to plan or like figure that out in the moment. So having a month's long schedule is really nice for me to know that I can just basically say, okay, this is what's going to happen. And I can pull the next review that I have scheduled off my shelf, go film it 
and have that be done. And if something comes up in between that, I just shift everything back a day and it's totally fine. But that's why and how I do that. But it is a little overwhelming to look at my calendar and see, oh, I have meetings these days and I'm posting two videos these days. And then I have a video every day for the next foreseeable lifetime and eternity. <laughs> you ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Um, just selfishly, I want to know. So you say you record yeah. and edit in the same day. Um, yeah. about how long does it take you to edit? I mean, your editing style is fantastic, by the way. Your videos are very engaging, very awesome. If you haven't checked Thank them you. out, definitely go check them out. Um, but, uh, how long does it take you to edit your, I don't know, your 12 to 15 minute long videos? Yeah, I'm typically, everything that you see on the channel is typically edited in under three hours. Um, it's normally yeah. anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes of footage normally closer to the to the smaller side but a lot of that is um just the big tips for people who want to edit is first off i've i've been doing it for four years so i've gotten fast i use keyframes on my uh i, I use uh, hotkeys on my keyboard and i have if if there's something that you find yourself in your videos making over and over again whether that's a different edit of a specific zoom or whether that is typing out the same thing over and over again Make that in Photoshop, make it in Canva or something, save it, and then just drag over one file and place that file instead of having to type it out every time. I did that for, I was typing out basket, like every single video, 10 different times. And I was like, why am I doing this? It's, it, I literally saved myself two minutes every single edit because I just did that in Photoshop one time in 15 seconds. And now I just drag that PNG onto my edit. And so a lot of that is building in, building in libraries of assets, which are like those type of things, like pictures, um, creating lots of effects that you can use over and over again. So if you watch my videos, I highlight a lot of gaps when I'm talking about gaps because if you're creating content for disc golf, the main things that people care about are watching the flight of the disc. So if someone's not able to see the flight of the disc, cut to the next shot. You know, if they're not able to see the end of it either and like make sure that you're framing it in a way that people can watch the full flight of the disc because that's what people want to see and know what you're talking about. Because if you're in the woods and people are staring at a screen, there's 50 trees on the screen and you're like, I want to miss, I want to get around this tree on the left side or I'm trying to hit this gap. No one has any idea what you're actually looking at. And so if you can highlight that in the edit, that's really, that's really helpful for getting people engaged because like it, that's one of the things that I saw that made me leave videos. Cause like, I don't know what you're talking about and this has happened three times. I'm just going to leave the video because I don't actually know what you're talking about. And so, um, having all that, something that I can just drag and drop it onto my, um, onto my, uh, video and then just click a couple little points with my pen tool and mask the gap makes it very fast. So things, I mean, it's, it's a lot of practice, but it's also, um, having the assets there. So that's why I think if I was to, if I was to pay someone to edit my videos right now, I probably expect them to get it done anywhere from five to eight hours, um, in my style. Uh, if they had like, if, if I was in their head, but they hadn't figured out how to create everything. Um, but they knew my vision for everything. And, but since I'm able to do it, the fastest I think I've edited a video is about an hour and a half, but it normally takes me anywhere from two to three hours. I want to explore one final topic before we uh, go to the bonus episode, patreon.com backslash chain clankers. If you want to continue listening to this interview with Anthony, when you are determining thumbnail and title, how do you go – how do you walk the line between clickbait and getting enough information out there that you portray what you're actually talking about? How do you walk that line personally? So I have a question for you first. Do you think that I ever cross that line? Do you think that I'm ever too clickbaity with any of my thumbnails and titles? I would say overall no. I think that I have personally learned a lot more be once I've kind of like taken that deep dive on your channel and and looked at how you title things and look at how you make thumbnails. A lot of them make sense to me. I just have not been able personally to find a good line of how am I conveying my message versus this is clickbait. And mm -hmm. I talk about message for two minutes in a 50 minute podcast. Yeah. So I, 
So this is the most important thing. So you, you just listen to how long it takes me to edit a video. I would typically work on thumbnail and title for about an hour to an hour and a half. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Because that's the most important thing. If I, like, I had a video, I thought the title and thumbnail was pretty decent. I didn't work on the thumbnail as long as I could. I posted it three or four days ago. It's my video about the terminal velocity Ursus. I titled it something like, uh, this is the best mid-range you've never heard of. And then I, the thumbnail was a little lazy. I think I could have put something that was also a little more enticing on there. I just basically put a picture of it and said, they're only mold. They're only, okay, cool. I gave more information, but that's not more information that an audience person would care about. So we can use that as a little bit of an example. The, the best mid-range you've never heard of is an all right title. It's not a great title. It's a little intriguing because it's like, oh, or the best overstable because people care about overstable mid-range. People want to hear about new things. I kind of gave it away a little bit too much maybe in the thumbnail because I put the stamp. I didn't put the name of the disc or anything. But the main things that I'm thinking about, with, oh, and that all that to say, that video is right now, I think, sitting on seven or 8,000 views. Uh, and a video that I posted this morning is sitting on the same amount of views because the, the, the click-through rate is double. The topics might, it might be, it might, uh, more people might be interested in the topic. I don't think by that much though, based on how things have happened with other um, titles and thumbnails and videos and topics that I've done before. But what I'm always looking at is what is going, what is true of my video? If I can't justify a title or thumbnail, then it's bad clickbait. I don't think that clickbait necessarily is bad. The way that our audience members who haven't studied YouTube or are interested in YouTube, if you hear clickbait, it's bad. But what clickbait means is I show you a picture and give you a title, but then I never deliver on what the title and thumbnail says. I can deliver on that and then move on to a different topic, and then maybe the title and thumbnail isn't representative of the whole video, um, which isn't ideal because, like, so what happened is literally today's video, my title and thumbnail are very good. My title and thumbnail are um, uh, uh, testing my new max distance during a form change. And then my thumbnail is something like the truth uh, most people don't talk about. Because I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this. I've heard some people like Robbie C talk about it. But it's like when you're in a form change, your distance is going to go down. But not a lot of people will show that process because it's a little bit humbling. Like that video is one of my more emotional, frustrating videos because it's not fun to have that happen. But... Uh, and some people think that's a little clickbaity. That's fine. Some people, it's the internet. People are going to say a lot of things and I have a hard time holding on to those myself. Uh, I do latch on to them. So if you're a hater or a troll and you want to get into my comments, you will get under my skin guaranteed because I'm not strong emotionally like I should be right now. But, um, some people, people are going to talk no matter what it's. And I've realized if I have 10,000 people watching a video and I get two comments about something that might be more representative, maybe 20 or 30 people and only two wanted to comment that. But out of that 10,000, that's a very small sample anyways. And so, I, so like, even if someone does think it's slightly clickbaity, the main thing is, do you deliver on the title and thumbnail? And so in that video, that video is 16 minutes long. I typically have 50 to 60% retention on my videos, meaning that if it's a 16-minute video, I'm typically looking at an average view duration of 8 to 10 minutes. This video only has about 6 minutes and 40 seconds. And a lot of the reason for that is that video starts with, hey, we're going to look at what my new max distance form is but it's, it was nighttime. The field wasn't very good. I didn't get great shots. So I was going to do a network session after that, no matter what. And I figured that when you do a video like that, people are interested in what your max distance is. And then they're not, some of them are going to stay around and watch the rest of the video. Some of them aren't They're It's like a navel gazy type of video because they want to see how far you throw. And so what was kind of nice is it got too dark. And so it was good for the story of the video where, okay, we're going to do my network session. Now we're going to break down this form. And I maybe broke down the form a little too long. And then we got back into looking at what max distance was the next day. And I think what happens with a lot of people who wanted to watch that video, if you want to use those words, got quote unquote baited into watching the video, they wanted to see what the max distance was. And I started to deliver on that and was able to kind of, cause we measured one throw, but then we went into network what I'm working on right now, because that's also a part of the video. And at the end, I also talked about like what my actual max distance was. And there's some people who are going to click into that. They're going to watch the first bit. They're going to be like, oh, he doesn't talk about this yet. They're going to go to the end and watch that. There's some people who aren't interested in the network session. Some people who are interested in all of it. But a lot of it is like you have to be able to, if I can't convince myself that it's not clickbait, I'm absolutely not posting it. If I can convince my wife or anybody else that it's not clickbait, I'm not posting it. Because as long as I can justify it, I'm okay with it. And this, and the most extreme example of this is... My video I did with the Birdie uh, Disc Golf Supply Marvel. And it's their soft Marvel. The title is, I think, um, this was voted the best putter of 2022. 
and then my thumbnail was better than the MV question mark, and then blurring out what the disc was and pointing to the disc. And the reason that I felt justified in making that is I would never have made that MV comparison because I don't really talk about it being compared to the MV much. But within the first 45 seconds of the video, I talk about how this one um, Disc Golf Reviews World Series of putters, it was the number one putter, and the last putter that it beat out in the last stage was the MV. And I show that on the screen and like I say, okay, and it won this series of putters. And that's where I feel justified in saying that, where it's, if I would have just said better than the MV and I didn't show that, absolutely clickbait. But since I showed that, there's justification for me showing that in the video. And I deliver on that promise of like, is it better than the MV? Okay, this person says it's better than the MV. Now we can watch and see what it is. Some people will leave. That's totally fine. And people can have different opinions on this. I don't think everybody's going to agree. People are probably going to think that I'm a hack and a fraud for saying all this. But I, I think that as long as I'm able to, and, and the way that I think about titling a thumbnail is I want to get the most people interested in this video um, and intrigue them with something that is, new or different and then the picture the the thumbnail has to be very clear simple um and few words so like less than five words some of them break these rules they're just like general rules but i'm interested in okay what is the majority of a disc golf or what is this video about and most of the time i do think up title and thumbnails before i even shoot the video because i want to know if someone will click on the video because if they won't click on the video it's not worth even making the video some things like disc reviews i'll make the disc review no matter what and then you can think about what is the characteristic of this disc that is unique or intriguing or what can I compare it to and make sure that you are comparing it to that in the video and then how do I how do I reach the broad most broad audience with this so for instance my last video that I posted yesterday was I think I found the perfect overstable di or the perfect approach disc and then the thumbnail was me with and I was holding four discs. One was a zone, which I show on screen. One was a harp, which I show on screen. One was a tactic, which I show on screen. The last one just had question marks. And so like, okay, you know, I'm comparing it to all these things. And so what it, and it's, I think I found the, the perfect uh, approach disc. It's not saying this is the perfect approach disc because that's something that like, you can still post that. That's fine. Like, but hedging it even a little bit where I think I found the perfect approach disc. That's like, I think is a hedging. I think I found is this is probably just for me, the perfect approach disc then I'm able to talk about whatever I want to in the video as long as I compare it with those three discs. And so it, it's definitely an art and it's something that I've, I mean, I've spent four years trying to think about this, but the simpler, the better and something that can reach to the most broad audience while still delivering on your promise. So I can't say like, I compare, this is the best out of all the approach discs in the world. Eh, not, I'm not talking about all the approaches in the world. I'm talking about four approach discs. Um, it's not, I'm not testing against all those things. And so I would, I would have to justify it to myself, but I would try to make it the most broad that I can that'll interest the most people. And as long as the video is good enough, people will stay around. So even on, like, even on that clickbaity video, I still have 40, or I think it's like 50 to 60% retention. Because, and, and, that, and that's what I'll tell you, is if you have a really clickbaity video, it'll be 20 to 40% retention uh, potentially, or less than what your normal retention is. It'll be, it'll be significantly lower than that. And that's when you know, okay, that was, that was clickbait. People don't appreciate that. And I haven't had any of those yet. I don't plan on having any of those because that would lose a lot of trust in my audience. Where there's some people who post, oh, this was kind of clickbaity. It's like, okay, kind of, but I can also justify it. And if I was in a room, if I was in a room with that random audience person, would I be able to justify it to them? If I can, yes. Then I feel good about posting that title and thumbnail. If I, and they're not going to take the time to actually listen to me in the comments or whatever. And I'm not going to take the time to tell them about it because that's not my job. I don't have to do that. But that's that's kind of where that line is drawn. That was very rambly. That might not have to stay in the podcast, but that's I, that's the most oh. passionate I am because titles and thumbnails will make or break your YouTube channel. If your titles and thumbnails are good, your YouTube channel will grow. As long as the content can back it up, as long as your attention can be good enough, titles and thumbnails will make it or break it. Guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's rambly at all. I think that's absolutely fantastic. I think that's why people came over here to learn more about that side, right? It's so interesting. You know, for me as someone who I've been watching a ton of your content lately, learning a lot about you, that is something that interests me because I'm like, wow, here's this big time YouTuber that I'm watching all the time. Now I'm seeing them on a different level and I'm understanding more of what goes into the secret sauce that makes this success. So I absolutely love it. And I think we can continue this kind of rabbit hole, but let's get over into the bonus podcast. Again, patreon.com backslash chain clankers. If you want to hear more of this conversation, we're going to go a little bit longer over there. If you're not going to join us over there, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. 
A lot of people here probably already know what your YouTube channel and your link is, but let's go ahead and share that out and do a little bit of self-promotion here. Sure. If you want to follow the journey, uh, it's Bodanza Disc Golf on YouTube, Instagram, mostly YouTube though. I'm very bad at Instagram, but I'll post some reels and do giveaways and stuff over there. But I post more than daily content essentially over on the YouTube channel, um, sharing my journey. Um, come join the journey. If you don't like the content, don't watch the content. That's okay. But I give it a try. Right on, man. Well, thank you very much. And thanks everybody for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And uh, we will see you soon.